Oscar, where's 1049 Park Avenue? This is 1049 Park Avenue! Can two divorced men share an apartment without driving each other crazy? Welcome to 1049 Park Avenue, an odd couple podcast. Ted Linhart, Garrett Eisler, here to do part two of our episode about Jack Klugman and Tony Randall shows after The Odd Couple. Last week, post OC. Post OC. Last week, we were only able to get through Quincy because there was so much to talk about and there's so many seasons and we had lots of clips to play and especially behind the scenes clips. So today we're going to cover the three sitcoms that they did after The Odd Couple, not together. Um, Tony Randall show Love, Cindy, and You Again, which I I don't know what you think, but these are not shows, like I've tried to watch them for this podcast. They're not mm-hmm. shows I would watch for pleasure. Uh, well, you know, from what I've seen so far, I agree. But part of the frustration is not being able to uh see more you know in a way I who see more who's he see <laughs> more odd couple um i know that the tony randall show is very well liked i mean we're getting a little ahead of ourselves and i know there's probably fans who listen to us who listen to watch in we can talk about our likes and dislikes but yes these shows because they all failed right. are not in syndication because they're only two seasons each and they're not streaming anywhere. And they're not streaming anywhere. We, I, we, you can see some on YouTube. Uh, I have some DVDs that were provided to me through a, an unofficial source, and um, I, that's probably. I think at one point, well, we'll talk a little more about it. But um, I did want to follow up on one thing that I. So last week we cut out. I, I, you asked me during the question about Quinn's first name, name about <laughs> Columbo's first name, right. and I went off on some sort of answer that was wrong, and I cut it out of the show because I just didn't want people to be like sending us emails telling me <laughs> I was wrong. But you corrected yourself, yeah. I so uh, well, I didn't correct myself on the pod. Oh. I'm correcting oh. myself now. I never yes. got the right answer out. Okay. Um, and I'd forgotten about this because this is something I did discover over the summer or I think since COVID. Uh, there's an episode of Columbo where he shows his identification to somebody and you can clearly see it says Frank. Mm. Uh, I don't remember that growing up. Reading about Columbo, I always thought either he had no last name or he had a name of Philip because I think there's some early thing Peter Falk did as a detective where his name was Philip. But if you Google Columbo's first name, it brings up a clear picture of his ID that says Frank. I see. Now, isn't in, you were mentioning Quincy the way what they do with his initial, right? Yes, is the, the same same gimmick. Y- yes, the closest we ever got to Quincy's first name is an initial, and it's the same general gimmick. It's, it's in writing. It's, it's in writing on an official. It's not a badge. It happens to be a business card in this case. Yeah, but we never got anything closer than R. Period. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about the Tony Randall show. So this is a rare show because it aired on it aired only for two seasons, but it aired on two different networks for 44 episodes in 76, 77, and 77, 78. Now there are shows that switch networks, but usually because it's very popular on one network for multiple years, and then for whatever reason, either contractual or license fees, 
or the show, the network that has it first just is ready to move on, another network will pick it up because they think it still has life in it. Uh, examples of that are Different Strokes, Taxi, oh. Buffy the Vampire Slayer are three examples. There's many others. Oh. Oh. But it's very rare uh, for a show to be only on two years and be on two networks. It was on- I see. Um, so most of those shows you mentioned like had long runs where yes. they, they changed networks somewhere in the middle, but it's rare to have like it strike out <laughs> twice, <laughs> strike out after one season on two different networks. Yes. Uh, on ABC, which is where it aired first, it aired Thursdays after Barney Miller, and CB, then it moved to CBS, and it was on Saturdays after Barb Newhart and Jefferson. So it had, like, pretty good time slots. Um, so the show was created by Tom Patchett and Jay Tarsies, who are well-known Sibcon creators. Between the two of them, either together or individually, they created ALF, Buffalo Bill, Days and Nights of Molly Dodd, and the Slap Maxwell story. You know, out of those titles, ALF is definitely the outlier. <laughs> it is. That's Tom Patchett's show. So, yes, it is the outlier. But it is the most successful, I think. I yeah, it is definitely the most successful. Buffalo Bill with Dabney Coleman, Dades and Nights of Molly Dodd, and, and Slap Maxwell were all very highly critically acclaimed at the time. Slap Maxwell also was Dabney Coleman. Um, uh, and I just, there's something about the humor of those shows, which is related to the Tony Randall show, there's the style of them, and I don't know I can put my finger on it, that I just doesn't work for me. It's not, I'm not saying they're bad shows, just I never got into those. I remember one, I was somewhere, I remember on a Thursday night, and the only thing that was on was Days and Nights of Molly Dodd, and I was so upset because, like, I don't like this show, <laughs> I don't sorry. care about her life. Um, was that technically a sitcom, though? It was a dramedy yeah, but it was Maybe. not like a live audience or live no, show. no, no, single camera. Yeah, because that's what to say. Like those, and I think from what I remember of those other titles you mentioned, um, well, Buffalo Bill and Alf were were laugh track shows. I mean, what when you say laugh track show, you oh, mean so sitcom sitcoms with audiences, multi camera, yeah, multi, yeah, multi camera shows. Uh, but uh, I see Molly Dodd then is the is the more of a change in format. yes. So in the show. Tony Randall plays Judge Walter Franklin, who works in Philadelphia. He's a widower. He's a teenage daughter, a preteen son. He is a housekeeper, a secretary. Other characters in the show are a housekeeper, secretary, court reporter, court assistant, and a love interest, uh, and his father. Those people show up multiple times over the two seasons. The most There's not a lot of well-known people in the show, in the main cast. The most recognizable I know to you is Barney Martin, who's the court reporter, who would, of course, play Jerry's father on Seinfeld. And, of course, a two-time odd couple supporting actor. Oh, right. I can't remember. What was he in? Okay. Uh, I'll give you a clue. One was from season one. Oh, okay. That Forget that. I don't know that one, I guess. Uh, a flashback episode in season one. I, I don't know. Oh, he's in the jury. Right. Okay. And, and what? And he was in season five. I think season five. What's the episode? Well, he plays another angry New Yorker. I don't remember. Oh yeah, I'll give you a clue. Ready? Pat, we're playing password. Yabus. Oh right. Of course, he's on. Yeah. Okay. I forgot about that. I remember we talked about him, and I just could not remember the episode. Thank you. So Tony Randall knew him. Uh, Dan Diana Moldauer is the judge who's the love interest, and people 
you know, who know 70s TV know her. I, I, you know, I think we've talked about her somewhere along the way. She was on Star Trek. She was on McLeod. She, of course, played Rosalind Shays on uh, L.A. Law and fell down the elevator shaft. That's where people probably know, most remember her from. Uh, Hans Conried, uh, who I should, I think he was on Make Room for Daddy, was his father. There are two episodes, and I watched one or both of them with Michael Keaton. So later in the show, uh, the Judge Franklin goes to teach a law school class, I guess as a way of getting some more zany characters on the show. And Michael right. Keaton is on two of those yes, in very, very early roles. And he's very funny in them. I would describe the, the, the show as a mix of Night Court meets Bob Newhart, where <laughs> yeah. you, the Night Court's obvious, but... And I think this is why maybe the show didn't work. You have Tony Randall playing the the sane guy kind of with a bunch of lunatics around him. Right. Like Harry Stone did. But the thing about Night Court was Harry Anderson, Harry Stone didn't need to be funny. Like Mm. he was just the centerpiece. Having Tony Randall not being the kind of kooky guy, you know, the, the outlandish guy as he was in The Odd Couple. And I think in other things... I don't, it didn't, that's a, that's what doesn't work for me. He's a straight man. Yeah. And he tries to not be the straight man and it just doesn't work because he is the straight man because, because everyone else is so bizarre. Right. Um, All right. So unless you want to say anything, I'm going to play the theme. Well, I, I agree with you basically about that, that central problem. I think that the show, at least in the limited amount that I've been able to watch it doesn't seem to get over, but um, let's go ahead and play your clips and then I'll play. All right, here's the theme of the show. So in the theme credits, it's just Tony Randall going around Philadelphia on, I think, on his bicycle. Did you watch the opening title? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't isn't he yeah, on a bicycle? Am I right? Something like yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just like a travel. He's doing walk. a lot of walking, a lot of like just it, walking. Um, yeah, maybe not going yeah. to work where he's a judge at the court. Yeah. And it's a lot of scenes of Philadelphia. Yeah. They, at why this show is set in Philadelphia why they make such a big deal about like that's a huge is that a huge appeal no it doesn't mean anything they don't take advantage of it and it's it's a little it is weird it's kind of i think it seems like the kind of choice that's like well let's do something different right but not i wonder was rocky maybe rocky was oh rocky was 76 i don't i don't know if that could time up about like just just take advantage of it it would have been so close they couldn't they must have already decided by that point um, all right, so now we have a we have two clips that are back to back, and it's seven minutes of talking of Tony Randall and 
And I didn't realize this until I started doing the show. Gary David Goldberg, who created one of my favorite shows of all time, Family Ties, uh, was a writer on the show and later and became a producer. So he, both Tony Randall and Gary David Goldberg discussed the show. Tony Randall seems to know a lot less about what happened on the show than Gary David Goldberg. Um, but we get a lot for a show that was only on two seasons. There's a surprising amount of discussion on the internet and the thanks again to the TV Academy for this uh, about this show. So we're lucky as people who want to discuss it and analyze it that there's so much material about a two season show. So sit back and and enjoy. And and the Tony Randall show aired on two networks during its run: ABC and CBS. Oh, that's right. That's yes. right. Yeah. Um, what what was that feeling like to jump networks midstream and? Makes no difference to the people yes. you're working with. That we we shot that show for um, Grant Tinker, yeah. and I remember the, the time we were canceled. Grant and I went for a long walk, and we were both so bitter. We were walking around Beverly Hills, and he was trying to buck me up, and I was trying to buck him up, and we were just we just couldn't talk. We were just so angry. We knew we had a good show, and those sons of bitches just. All they know is ratings. Now, when I did Love Sydney, Grant Tinker was the head of the network. <laughs> so he was the one, who, again, after two years canceled, he was the one who had to call me up and tell me. And he said, I imagine you're miffed. Those were his words. <laughs> no long walk this time. Patchen and Taurus has created a new show with Tony Randall. And they put me on now as story editor, um, which was a which was a great break. Uh, obviously, a step up in position, but also that I got to work with Tony. And Tony was an extraordinary guy, talent, and with beyond all that bluster, whatever you remember of him on the Tonight Show, just a pussycat, just the sweetest guy. I mean, he was just amazing. I love him. Um, what happened was Tom and Jay didn't get along with Tony. Uh, with first year, we had a 27 share. Uh, they also would never speak to Fred Silverman, right? So Fred Silverman was then the biggest man at television. He would call and they would say, uh, well, we're playing foosball. We can't talk to him now, you know? <laughs> it was like, then sometimes they would take the phone and put it over the foosball game, you know? So I don't know what they were thinking. I'm thinking, that can't be good. There's only three networks, you know? He's the biggest guy, you know? So they, because I was willing to do, so any terrible job, that would come up, they would give it to me. I would do it. Because they, they called me John Boy, because I was so earnest and eager. So they was going, let John Boy do it. This is a shit job. I've got to give it to John Boy. And I, I was so happy to do it, just so happy to do it. So they said to me one time, why don't you call Fred Silverman, John Boy? You like him so much. I go, he's not going to talk to me, you know? Well, he's not going to talk to you. We're not talking to him, you know? So at the end of the year, we're canceled with 27 share. As Jay Tarsa said of Fred Silverman, a very small man. So he's, they've abused him for a whole year. Now they're surprised that he's canceled us. But Grant, in a brilliant stroke, gets the show picked up on CBS for the second season. Bob Daly was the head of CBS at the time. And um, Tony's fine. He has one condition. He doesn't, work with Tom, he doesn't want to work with Tom and Jay anymore. And uh, that's fine with them. They don't want to work with him anyway. They get paid no matter what. So who is absolutely without power, without prestige, without anything, who we can now move up and all of us control 
me, you know, and I had a, a, a cohort at that time, Hugh Wilson, who went on to do Police Academy, WKRP in Cincinnati. It was our first job. We weren't partners, but we were colleagues there, you know. So because we are the lowest people probably in show business, we now get moved up and we're producing the Tony Randall show because everyone thinks they're just going to do whatever they want. And we're going to be the we're going to be the Nouriel Maliki of, uh, of of producing, you know, they're just going to tell us what to do. And but Hugh and I were not stupid. I mean, we were, but we were smart in this one area, which is, OK, you can call us whatever you want, say whatever you want, pass whatever you want. No one else can come on the set. It's either our show, again, just trying to protect the process, you know, and it's just our show or we won't do it. Um, I don't care any about the outside trappings of it, but I'm not going to do a show where then someone else can say, here's what you got to do. It's either our show or it's not our show. And everybody went along with it, you know, and we went to Tony and we said, look, Tony, we're no, we have no business producing the show, really. We know who you are. You're Tony Randall. We know who we are. You know, I, he was running a plant store in Gardena last year. You know, we're we're here, but this is it. You were all you have. But if you give us your trust, you're, we'll kill ourselves for it. You know, and and you and Tony, his eyes welled up. You know, he just said, "Boys, you always call us boys." He goes, "Boys, we're in this together." And he never he never went against that. He uh, he was a riot, Tony. I mean, he was no. Uh, I'm not saying he was a picnic. You know, but in public. In the public sphere, he would never go against us. He would always say, ah, and then they would, and the director would well, that's what the boys want. He goes, well, if that's what the boys want, I'm overruled, you know? But then he would come back, and he was great, Tony, because the name of the show, of course, was The Tony Randall Show, and we had to be arguing different discussions. He goes, wait, he goes, wait, I, uh, what's the name of this show? He goes, oh, look, it's The Tony Randall Show. He goes, surely I should have something to say, you know? He would show you it's the Tony Randall show, you know, um, and he played a character, Judge Walter Franklin, and his other great line, which Tony was, he goes, no, no, I have no problem with that voice. No, we'll do that. He goes, I have one question for you, though. Who's playing Judge Franklin Friday night? Because I'm not, you know, so, so Tony was perhaps we call passive aggressive. But uh, at the bottom of it, he was just a doll, you know, what I mean, and, and actually, most of the time he was right. We had one scene, I remember, that was uh, I, I thought really worked. And Tony wanted to change, and we said, Tony, but it really, it worked. And he said, I can make anything work. That's not the point. He goes, we can do better. And so this is what we were dealing with. But just the sweetest guy, you know, where he's always just hugging, and after every time there was a fight, they would send us stuff, you know. But he was great. And every uh, Saturday morning, you know, actually we used to shoot the show on Tuesday night. And uh, so Friday night, Hugh and I would do one last pass just so we could say to Tony in our own hearts and minds, look, you have everything, whatever the limitations of our talent, you have everything we have this week. And Tony would call every Saturday morning. I could hear the opera playing in the background, and he would say one of two things. Boys, you did it. His other thing would be, boys, I'll save you. <laughs> you know, so, um, and then here's the other great thing about Tony Randall. There were so many, but he, um, he never turned on us. The ratings weren't good. We were following the Jeffersons. I said, defied CBS. Show us the DNA of one person who sits down to watch both shows, who says, honey, quick, it's the Tony Randall show and then the Jeffersons. No, it was the worst match ever, you know. Uh, but he said, I like what it, I like the material, boys, and that's really all that matters to me. And his, his friend, uh, Klugman, was having a huge success uh, with Quincy at the time, so it was really a rivalry, friendly rivalry, but still, Tony never turned. And we were canceled, and at the final party, he said to me, uh, I have one regret. And I said, 
What's that, Tony? He said, I wish I could buy stock in your future. Oh, that's a lot of interesting stuff there. Interesting that if both- only he did buy stock in- Yes. <laughs> okay. uh, both Tony Randall and Jack Clement basically fired their show creators mm -hmm. from their shows. <laughs> um, well, you know, it, it, it makes me remember how much, I mean, they couldn't, they never, they could not, and they would not have fired Gary Marshall, but they certainly got a lot of writers fired, I think, or some writers. Um, they, you know, I think they both through Odd Couple would gotten, got used to having a very controlling hand in the yeah. show. So it doesn't surprise me that they would let go of any of that clout when they moved on. You know, they, they continue to expect to have that, I guess. Um, a 27 share back at the day, I think was okay. Uh, not, not parable, but, um, and I don't think putting it, I understand why he's saying that Jefferson's and Tony Randall show don't, aren't a great match. That's, they're not a great match, but I still think in the seventies, mm -hmm. uh, having a strong comedic lead in, even if it's not obviously the right type of comedy, sort of the same type of comedy, uh, is not to you know and again there weren't that many options for viewers. right you know as someone who's worked on the side of the business where we decide to cancel shows every actor and creator doesn't understand why you do it um and tony reynolds says it's all they care about is ratings yes that's yes. their business that's their currency so um those types of statements are you know a little bit naive um so there are some episodes and clips online. Oh, so I, what I was going to say earlier was I do remember at some point in New York City on C, I would want to say it was WCBS TV, the local station, aired the Tony Randall show hmm. at like eleven a.m. or eleven thirty. I remember being, I think I remember was sick or it was Christmas vacation or something, and I remember shows like there was a show with Richard Crenna and uh, called. It takes two, Richard Crenna and and Patty Duke. A kid, right? Yeah, I remember. Yeah, that was I. I maybe ABC. And I remember there's a bunch of two season sitcoms. The place to run the only place <laughs> in syndication to find two season sitcoms was Jack. network mornings between soap operas and local news. <laughs> before Which today, so today that slot is basically all talk shows. Yeah, right. This was before the avalanche of syndicated game shows and talk shows. Um, they needed to fill an hour or two. And so the shows that you know lasted a couple of years would be really cheap, I imagine. And we're able so I remember Tony Randall's show, I think being there, maybe it was on CBS late night. At one point in the 80s, CBS didn't have a talk show or a news show, and they aired a lot of um action shows. They had this thing called Crime Time after Prime Time, but they aired a lot of reruns uh in late nights. It's possible that's where I saw a Tony Randall show. Anyway, I remember watching it at some point in the way in the back and really liking it, actually. And then oh, when I watched 12, 11, oh. 13, and maybe I didn't know, maybe I just liked it because it was Tony yeah, Randall. Tony Randall, right. Yeah. Right. But I remember laughing at it and thinking, oh, I'm surprised this show didn't make it longer. Um, but watching it now again, and I, I had some DVDs recently from that same source, which I don't didn't have. I tossed them because I didn't know we'd be doing oh. this podcast. You tossed your, <laughs> you're saying, if only you knew. 
Yes, like I had them before like we the started only the podcast. Reason for someone to have a complete set of the Tony Randall show would be to do a, an odd couple podcast. Well, I, I wanted to watch them for my own entertainment. <laughs> um, oh and then God. I said, I know the show isn't that good, so I don't need these yeah, around. I don't think you're missing much by just seeing what's online. Yeah. It's the same thing. Uh, and I remember watching them recently and thinking, eh, it's okay. All right, so we're going to um, play a clip here. This is an episode found online um, where the judge is annoyed with a defense attorney for an accused arsonist. Um, on the witness stand at this point in time is a Japanese man who took photos of the defendant setting the fires. So there's proof. So this is an example of the type of humor for this show in the courtroom. There's also humor in his personal life, which I'm not going to play of because I just don't think it's that important to play all sorts of aspects. Mr. Janecki, your witness. Please try to be brief. You're not being paid by the word. Ah, uh, yes, Your Honor. Mr. Hasamoto. Where were you on the morning of December 7th, 1941? Oh, <laughs> I my own objection. All right, Your Honor, I'll try to rephrase the question. Does the term day of infamy ring a bell? Objection! Sustained, Mr. Janecki. For almost four weeks now, you've gone to interminable lengths of time to examine the most trivial details. You ramble back and forth to no discernible purpose. You rehash the obvious. Your objections are frivolous and your tactics dilatory. What's your point, Judge? My point is I want you to ask this witness some questions that have some sense in them and have some bearing on the case. Well, I can do that. Then do it! No problem. <laughs> Mr. Hatsimoto, <laughs> is it true that you were flown here from Japan to testify here in this trial? Oh, yes. Very nice. Now, who do you suppose paid for these tickets? Oh, anybody might have paid for them. Possibly one of Mr. Butler's mafia connections. <laughs> All right, no further questions. Jack, I want those last remarks stricken from the record. The Pearl Harbor stuff or the mafia stuff? <laughs> one more thing, Your Honor. Have a seat, Mr. Denecki. You have no further questions. I just assume, Stan, there's something wrong with that chair. Sit down, Mr. Denecki. Does it? My standing offend the court? Yes, it does. Sit down. May the record show that the freedom of movement has been denied me in this courtroom. Mr. Denecki, you will sit down or you will face the consequences. Thank you, Mr. Denecki. Your Honor. Well, if I can't stand, I can't move. If I can't move, I can't defend my client. If I can't defend my client, there's no justice. If there's no justice, we might as well kiss America goodbye. <laughs> Let me get this straight, Mr. Denecki. By making you sit down, I'm destroying the whole country. Is that right? In my opinion, Judge. I'll just have to take my chances. Now, if it's all right with you, I'm going to recess this court until 2 o'clock this afternoon. Your Honor, it's already 3.30. Yeah, yeah um, um, 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Tomorrow Saturday. Well, I don't... Pick a day, any day. I don't Monday. Care. Monday is fine. No, 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 Monday is no good for me. You be here Monday. This coming Monday. Uh, judge, now, when we convene, will I be able to stand? No. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I hope you can see what is transpired here. Mr. Go to your room. <laughs> So there's an odd couple joke there 
Did you hear what he said? Uh, go to your room? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, uh, wait, who, isn't that Oscar who says go to your room? Yeah, Oscar. I, don't they both say that to at each other point, at one point? Yes. Yeah. So that's that, you know, it, this is that, I, I, I don't know, again, I can't explain. It's the same type of humor that you see in Buffalo Bill and Slap Maxwell, which I remember trying in the time. There's just something about it that just doesn't work for me. Well, I think I know what you're saying, even without seeing those shows, because those other shows, because yeah, what I've found so far in just what I've seen, Tony Randall's show, there's a kind of like very mild tone. I think it's also very, it does, I think the Bob Newhart comparison is absolutely right, uh, even though that's a better show, I guess, although I never, I love Bob Newhart, but I never got into the, the actual sitcom. But, but it's that kind of like very dry and mild kind of, I wouldn't say intellectual, but kind of like, it's not farcical. It's not like, you know, laugh out loud funny. It's like just some witty remarks. And you know, am I getting sort of what you're saying? It's sort of like yes. A, it's not, I guess there's not jokes in it. Like I like, right, right. I like it's, shows where there's a funny line and they're just kind I, of quirky characters saying quirky. quirky things. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, there's the same, it's the same thing with this housekeeper who I think a lot of people like who like the show and the stuff in the, in the law school, is the same thing you know there are there were some clips of michael keaton that i thought about playing and i just didn't well um you know well, by the way i looked uh, um to sort of fill in the blanks for me i i went to the imdb episode list to really we'll try to learn get us more of a sense of what the show is like uh and by the way not all a few not all of them even have plot descriptions so there is uh, opportunity here for diehard Tony Randall show fans to fill that in on IMDb. But what you just played is from season one, episode eight, called the Dineki debacle, debacle. Uh, and, but the, I agree, the Michael Keaton episode, which is in full, you can watch on uh, YouTube, I felt was better than what I see in that clip you played. I agree. It and, is I wonder, and it was very interesting to hear Gary David Goldberg basically say that season two was a you know a new team uh a new writing or it looked like that it makes me wonder like if season two is better than season one could be this the, the the michael keen stuff has a lot of visual elements too there's like a blind girl in the episode that's part of it and then so i if you're interested in the show you can go find what you want to find on youtube um I, i'm not surprised it didn't last yeah I yeah, there's did. really not a huge selling point. You know, there's nothing. He's not, well, let's start. <laughs> he's not a very likable character. And unlike Felix, who's at least entertaining when he's not likable, this Judge Franklin is like a kind of a drip, you know? I just think there's so much misguided about this as a vehicle for him. I mean, I can't believe that in something that they conceived of as the Tony Randall show, that they couldn't come up with a character who was more Tony Randall. I guess, I, I, I suppose Tony might have wanted a change from Felix Unger. You know, he might, I understand if he didn't want to repeat himself and wanted a, a, to branch out a different kind of character, but like, they must have been developing this idea of a judge doing a, you know, a sitcom built around a judge for a while. They just kind of shoehorned him into it. Um, and now on that, like, as you mentioned, like, then they start off with him being a widower. I mean, talk, he's a boring judge who's depressed. Like <laughs> that first episode, which is also, you can watch in full on YouTube is, I just find it really like uh, a downer. Um, and, and he's sad the whole time. It's weird. 
And given how we love the odd couple courtroom episodes, yes. it seems like there was a way, maybe if he was a lawyer or something. Right. Well, that, again, that's yeah, to me is the big, the big mistake is that maybe they, that was the springboard for the idea. But the whole point is the lawyer gets to be funny. <laughs> the judge does not get to be funny. The judge is the straight man of the court, you know, unless, unless of course, you're Kirk Conway. But um, even he's a straight man who just has some good lines. Right, right. So, and what's funny is in the Michael Keaton episode, there's a scene where he trains in his office. He's training someone else to be a prosecutor and he acts out what a lawyer should do. And that's when you go, ah, now Tony Randall is back. You know? Oh, I didn't, I didn't yeah. see that. It's a, uh, it, he's doing a Felix Unger, you know, in court. He's doing like, he pretends to be this like swaggering lawyer. And it just seems misguided. They put him in the wrong role. Um, I'm going to go watch that. Yeah. I, get, I wish I had, maybe if I'd seen that, I would have pulled the clip there. I didn't see it. Um, so I am, I mean, I would be curious to see, especially when I think about it, season two, I think Michael Keaton comes. He's a, yeah, he's, he's the last, it's the only, last, I believe it's the last two episodes. The right. show got canceled. I think maybe there Toward were, the end, he uh, teaches this night class. Yeah. That's where they were trying to maybe evolve the show. You know, and the, the the scenes of the night class, it's still like a ba the basic humor, the basic joke, I think they keep playing off of is that, and this is where I guess Tony Candle is well cast, is that he's an elitist. He's this like very proper, dignified uh, jurist. And they surround him with a bunch of, like a, there's a bunch of other kooky characters, but the main, uh, the main uh, contrast are people like Barney Martin. You know, like regular people, uh, regular average American or you know, Joe Sixpack or, you know, man in the street. And that and that's the whole, the, when he teaches the night class in law school, Michael Keaton's kind of this punk, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and who they can't, they, they can't understand each other. They keep talking passage of this, this uh, the judge is like such an elitist. And that only goes so far, that kind of class, you know, conflict, uh, Rich guys, poor guys, you know. So um, here's something else that uh, I, I have to get off my chest, Ted, because I think maybe you can enlighten me about this. This brings to mind why something I've always wondered about is like shows that are named after the star, even if the character does not have that name. <laughs> oh. There's uh, always something that's Bob Cosby show. Um, Dick now, Van Dyke. Right. Bob Newhart, the Bob Newhart show, at least his name was Bob. Yeah, Bob Hartley. Um, but then in Newhart, when they yeah, did Newhart. That's right. It's not. His name Dick, is neither Bob nor Yeah, Peter. it's Dick Loudon. Uh, I don't, yeah, I mean, I guess they put the name of it because Mary Tower Moore, also Mary Richards, wow. obviously. But at you, least you're, you're talking about the first name. Yeah, uh, I I guess they want to they want to sell the show with a big right. star, but the. But it's like, isn't it? This seems like the laziest form of sitcom producing which is just like okay show with tony randall here you go and but i don't that's the only thing that can sell it or his well case, you think it's contractual in some cases like no this, i'm thinking it's a marketing it's i don't know about contract it's a marketing stunt i mean i don't know if it's contractual i think it's a way to allow the show to not have a generic title where you don't know what it is oh, and it says true. if you like tony randall and we think there's yeah. tens of millions of you you're going to watch it as opposed to calling it philadelphia judge Right. Or family show. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I see, that's a good point. It stands out. Right. I mean, I'm not saying it's bad marketing. It's probably very effective, but uh, it just bothers me uh, dramaturgically that like, 
it's like the name Tony Randall has nothing to do with this show. It's about a judge named Walter Franklin. Except he's the star of the show, so yeah, therefore. No, but uh, but it, and in a way, but in this case, it also, uh, I think it works against it because the persona, the character, yeah, is not to really that, Tony Randall. In this case, it didn't work because they people, especially at seventy six, people were ready for Felix. Yeah. Hunger. Right. And I am not, not getting Felix Unger. I don't, I think people were probably double disappointed. Right. Because I think at least with Bob Newhart show, his character is an extension of his comedy. Persona. Yes. Right. Same with Cosby. Um, yes. And, uh, but of course Seinfeld did it right where they just. <laughs> right. That <laughs> was it. Yes. Yes. And ironically, I mean, I guess people kind of knew him when the show started, but. But he wasn't that big a star. Right. Right. So they actually kind of took a risk naming it after yeah. somebody people don't really know so I, I it brought to mind like uh, the number of instances that happens in, in tv where i'm like the only one who complains about it. yeah I, i'm this doesn't bother me i a lot of things bother me not this all right let's move on to his next show which is also chronologically the next show and that is love sydney so love sydney came about in 1981 based on a short story now it started as a tv movie called Sydney Shore, A Girl's Best Friend, which was made in 1980 as a pilot. But instead of airing the pilot in 1980, NBC just picked it up to series right away. I guess they really liked it. So the movie, they decided to hold the movie to air right before the series began in 81. So the movie's a year right. old. It's about a gay man whose mother has passed and his lover has left him. So another depressing Tony Randall character. <laughs> He ends up taking in a woman who needs a place to stay, and he needs a roommate, uh, so they live together platonically. She gets pregnant. She wants to have an abortion. Sydney convinces her not to and agrees to raise the child, and they live as a family, and he does raise the child for a while until she moves away because she gets married. Uh, that's, the, that's the TV movie, and then the series picks up. She returns uh, with the daughter, who's now approximately five years old um so here's tony randall discussing the premise and the origins of the show um but that show love sydney certainly had an interesting history in the way it developed as a tv movie and the compromises made uh you talk about taking the role in the um in the film and then the changes that were made in terms of being less explicit with the nature of the lead character no that's not so okay it wasn't really explicit in the film. It was implicit. Um, he never said, I'm gay, but you understood perfectly that he was gay uh, by references to a Martin whose picture was on the right. mantelpiece. That was all kept in the series. And we did 44 shows, 22 a year for two years. And in every single one of those shows, it was implicit. Never explicit, but it was always there, and I don't know what they're talking about. Mm. Well, what were the cha creative challenges then in, in, there was a subtlety involved then, uh, clearly because of the times as well, not ready for, do you believe that, again, Everyone knew. again, that TV was not ready for a more overt expression? It wasn't a show about homosexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, today, when they're overt, as in the case of this show that was just canceled, what was the name of it? Ellen. Ellen. Mm -hmm. 
they're only sold because of its lurid sensation value. They build ratings with that. They're trying to out-lurid each other. Didn't help, did it? No, no, no advertising campaign ever worked as well as that. Pictures on the cover of Time and Newsweek, everything, and lasted one season, it's over. Well, this show, uh, Love City, was a totally different animal, no question about it. It was about a it was family about the unit. Little girl. Yes, it's about people gathering around, forming a, 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 a family. family unit. Yes. Now, we were attacked by um, the moral majority. We were attacked by the right wing. We were attacked by the Lubavitcher Jews. And we were attacked by the gay advocate. Because you weren't far enough? Exactly. Mm. And what, what Love Sydney was about was this man's need for a family. And they said that's a, not an honest picture of homosexuality. Not every homosexual wants a family. I don't believe that. I believe everybody wants a family. Yeah. And he's an individual, yeah. too. The, uh, the extreme right wing, the moral majority, mounted a letter-writing campaign before the show ever went on the air. Guess how many letters I received. Haven't a clue. Guess. Uh, thousands, I would think. Four. To you personally. It was all network. Four letters I got. Mm -hmm. I answered each one and said, uh, I, I explained what we were doing, and I said, please let me know what you think. No one, uh, they never wrote back to me. Mm. They were probably surprised to hear Oh, that. they were phonies. Mm. Mm. But the public itself, when the show came on, what was the reaction when the show actually was seen? Well, I it was a good show, and it was well-received, but it, there was something about it that didn't go nationally. We had wonderful ratings in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. Those are your overnights. Mm -hmm. then, you, then the next day, which is the second day, you get the no, national averages, and it would fall in the national averages. Didn't seem to play well in Peoria. Well, during that early hubbub, which often is people judging a show sight unseen, which seemed to have happened here, did Grant Tinker express support creatively in the show and NBC, for that matter? Did he want Grant Tinker? Was he supportive of the show and oh, yes. his creative nature? And, oh, yes. And in the face of the, the controversy and all of that? There was very little controversy. Whatever controversy existed, I'm sure they were happy about. Stimulated interest. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Um. So I just want to point out, Grant Tinker created, for those who don't know, MTM Enterprises, Mary Tom Enterprises, which produced the Tony Randall show, amongst many other famous TV shows, including Bob Newhart. Uh, and now at this point in time, he's running NBC, which is what Tony Randall mentions. Um, so it lasted two seasons, aired Mondays, Wednesdays, and Saturdays. And I think that time slot. How, how does that work? Well, the meeting. Sorry, oh, I'm sorry. not in one week. <laughs> not in one week. It, it moved, moved around. Yeah, moved around, and moving around a show does not help. Uh, the movie co-starred Lorna Patterson as Lori. Kalina Kiff was the woman, the, the girl who played her daughter Patty. That's in 1980. But when the show was ready to air, Lorna Patterson had become Private Benjamin in the TV version. A private Benjamin, so she was not available, and that's where Susie Susie Kurtz came in. Mm -hmm. And this is, I don't know, maybe where I first ever heard of Susie Kurtz because yes. I did watch Love Sydney. I remember, do remember controversy. I do remember the big deal about this character being gay. Tony Randall downplays it, and perhaps 
correctly, uh, literally the way he describes the show, I think is correct. But it was a big deal at the time. I remember having a character who was, a, you know, acknowledged to be gay, even if they didn't overtly say it. Um, and then, of course, I did watch Sisters back in the 90s. I don't know if you remember Sisters. That was the soap opera that Susie Kurtz was on. Do you remember Swiss Sisters? Seal Award was on it. George Clooney showed up for a, a, a guest arc. Patricia Callenberg, Julianne. Okay. All right. So here's Tony Randall discussing the change of actress from Lorna Patterson to Susie Kurtz. Now, I was expecting the interviewer says, What about Susie Kurtz? And I expected Tony Randall to like gush about her. And it's <laughs> weird the way he responds. You had a change of lead actress in the show from the movie to the series. Yes. But, um, um, to Susie Kurtz uh, was the lead when you went to uh, mm -hmm. series version. Yes. Right? Um, why was the change made and how was it to work with Susie Kurtz? Well, I didn't want to do another series. Mm -hmm. And I kept refusing and kept refusing. And Lorna Patterson had made the movie, that lovely movie called Sydney Shore. And I kept waiting and refusing to do it. And we lost her. She went on to do a series of her own called Private Benjamin. So we had to find someone new. And Susie, um, who's uh, seen a lot on stage, and she's done TV, of course, mm -hmm. since then, but how was that to work with? Oh, wonderful. Mm -hmm. That was fine. The show changed production from New York to Los Angeles during the course of the show? Yes. Why did that happen? Lack of studio space in New York. Mm. Yes. No creative changes um, were part of any of that? No, no. Mm. Just logistics. Yeah. And, and the fact that the ratings were not that high, is that what pretty much um, predicated it? That's the story. Mm-hmm. That lasted two years? Yes. Mm-hmm. You seem to look back on it quite fondly. Well, I only did it because they gave me an enormous amount of money for my theater, for the mm -hmm. National Actors Theater. I had no money at that time for my project, and now I had money. And so that's why I did Love, Sydney. I'd heard that before, that... He didn't want to do another series, you know, he had a failed one. And, um, but if it wasn't for the National Actors Studio, this show, I guess, would not have existed. Yeah, he, um, you know, I, be, he, I know it, ten, it, 10 years, it took, you know, throughout the 1980s, that seems to have been probably, you know, coincidental with the end of the Tony Randall show. You just like kind of imagine that when the Tony Randall show ended, he kind of wanted to, he'd been in television for eight years, seven years straight. And uh, was getting up in years, getting as close to 60. And um, this was a dream he always had. And so it seems like he made a decision right around this time, in, around 1980, that he was going to do this before he died. And he set about doing it in the 1980s. I think that explains not only this series, but why he did so many commercials in the 1980s. Um, and, uh, and things like the Odd Couple reunion and all that. Um, it's funny watching these shows the last two weeks. Um, you, you, it's like you're getting the arc of their life. It, they, they, it like you can see if you watch start with season one of The Odd Couple and you go all the way through Quincy, you've seen twelve years in Jack Klugman's life. You know, uh, you can watch them age like is by watching all these shows through the early eighties. Um, um, wait, there was something else I wanted to say about, oh, did you watch the Sydney Shore movie? I, I couldn't find it. Did you find it? It's on YouTube. 
Oh, it doesn't show up under Love Sydney. Oh, uh, Sydney. No, I didn't search for it. I guess I didn't really care. Yeah. I mean, I get, you know, it's, 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 it's allowable. It's excusable, Ted, because it's, um, it is very much a movie made for TV film, but it is not a traditional pilot. And I kind of like my sense of it from what I've, from watching the movie and reading the accounts is like i don't get the feeling they were necessarily thinking of the people who made the movie i don't know if they were thinking of it as a pilot because it's a very self-contained little movie and um and it's also a true it's a one camera film it is not a sitcom yeah yeah i see it i found it now i see it here and in that context it's actually kind of like Odd Couple, right? Like Odd Couple made first a play, but then made into a successful movie, and then as a one-camera movie, and then they made a sitcom based on that. So the relation between the Sydney Shore film and the Love Sydney series is kind of like Odd Couple. Um, I have to say, I was, uh, I got into the movie very much. I do recommend it, uh, although I think it's really the first half of it or the first third of it that I really loved. Um, but I think it's a great performance by him. Um, this character, the way he creates this character. And well, what I got, what I really have to admit is that my love for the first third, 30 minutes of the movie is it's a total Upper West Side movie. It's made on location. It's in the actual locations. It's so evocative of that, especially you see all this in like on the streets in 1980, but in some ways it hasn't changed. And I know that we 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 were Upper East Siders as as children, but I, I have to confess, Ted, that I moved my allegiance. My allegiance shifted to the West Side as an adult, because that's where I lived as an adult. And uh, so there's a scene in the Thalia, the old Thalia movie theater, which is now part of Symphony Space, called the Leonard Nimoy uh, uh, Theater. And I remember going to the Thalia when it was a revival movie house, uh, and they go in. They're inside that, they shoot inside the Thalia Theater, as I remember it. And, and there's a scene in Zaybars. There is, um, it's just, uh, you can see the streets, you know, I could recognize the streets. So, and also just the, the premise of the whole Sydney Shore story is these older New Yorkers who grew, who had, who lived in these huge Upper West Side apartments because they either inherited it from their parents, like, but it was a time when the Upper West Side was still very middle class. And so you had these old people living in these huge apartments who were not wealthy. They just like from the old days when they were not, when rent was not as high. And, uh, but because rents were rising, they would take in uh, roommates. And I remember when I was looking for apartments or places to live, I would see the, I, I, I visited, I, I, you know, I interviewed with a, a, a couple of old people who were renting rooms in their large Upper West Side apartments. So this is a real thing that happens. And, uh, but it, it also is what's very touching is, oh, it is very sad. It's another thought, but at least this was, is a drama. The Sydney Shore movie, I would say, is definitely a drama with some laughs. But these opening scenes of uh, him, he, 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 he uh, they show him going into this deli every night where he just like sits, like a, not even a, not a, fancy deli but like a corner bodega uh and just like order some pasta salad and some turkey and he goes for his soup and then you see him come home this empty apartment and he just sits in the kitchen by himself he opens takes the pl- the paper bag 
and just rips it out on like very Oscar Madison like like on the table as his napkin and just sits there eating the soup by himself and then just throws the whole thing out and it's just like this sad lonely life but that I recognize that you see old New Yorkers you know who who uh, have been widowed or left alone or divorced and they just kind of like go through this routine I don't know if I make any sense, but no, no, you are. And yeah. I, 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 I will probably, I don't know if I'll get through the whole thing. I definitely recommend watching the first half. Hour. I will try it. Yes. If, if you don't like where it's going, then don't, don't. It don't. sounds like there's no good clips I missed by not watching it. Um, no, no, it's very visual. I mean, I would right. say it's very, it's very cinematic. The feel. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think listening to it would sounds happen. a little like there's a Woody Allen component to it. Maybe it could be like from, Certainly not a, a character. Well, no, but more like the style or the kind of yes, ethos. Absolutely of, right. Yeah. It's that era of late seventies, early eighties New York filming in the streets and all that. Now, what I think is what also is interesting how it became a series. Like, I guess that it's kind of an odd. I don't know if it was who is it Grant Tinker's idea. Like, whose idea was it to turn this into a sitcom? Well, when you watch what movie, I read not material. What I read indicated it was shot as a pilot. Now, maybe the pilot was for a drama. I see. But yeah. I read that it was a shot with the intention of being a series. I don't know if it was the intention yeah. of being a sitcom. Well, it know. is, again, it's a very self-contained movie. And one of the, I would, now, Love, Sydney is a show I would like to see more episodes of, definitely. And it's unfortunate that there are no complete episodes on YouTube. Um, yeah, only clips. And yeah, I didn't, I never had well, dicks I, I would love those. to get my hands on this and that. And I would especially like to see the pilot because, the way the movie ends, I don't want to spoil it. But no, I already it, spoiled it. Well, you spoiled it, but I think there's something, I, I'm not sure. Go ahead, it, spoil it. Okay. Yes, you can spoil it. Let's put it this way. At the end of the movie, I don't see how they come back to him. Wait, because, did someone die? <laughs> no, no, there's no, that's not that. The movie gets very contentious between them. This is where it gets dramatic. Basically, she has the, the baby that he supports, but he gets so possessive of the baby that he refuses to, he claims custody. Oh, oh. Right. And they have a court fight. I read that. It's yeah. really nasty between them. Oh. Now they kind of make up at the end, but they move to California, the, the woman with her, her new husband. And so when I, then when I looked at the sitcom, I'm going, well, did they just pretend that the last half of the movie never happened? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's probably not. Yeah, that's one of those conceits that TV does all right. the time. I think, they, and like the Odd Couple, right, where Felix moved out, and you know, yeah, um, and also you have to look at how old the girl is, the child, because uh, in the movie she ages till about like six or seven or something. So, I, it seems like it's just picking up from the premise of the movie, but not the actual. Yes, plot. yes, I, that's that. I think it's not supposed to be a direct yeah. connection. It's just, but kind and of, so it's and it's really interesting watching the clips that I, there are of Love Sending because it is a, a it's a three camera sitcom. Yeah, and uh, and uh, it's the contrast with the tone and the feel of the movie is, is is a big thing. Although his performance is consistent, and I think it's a great performance and a great role for him because the, it is a bit Felix Ungary. Yeah, uh, he gets to be this very, but he's more schlubby. He's not the neat freak. He's it's just kind of like the elitist. He's into old movies and high culture, and he's very irascible about things, but not about neatness. And so, and gets very uh, uh, possessive and very uh, dictatorial in the in the home, and um, so he gets to have some that Felix energy in this. And it is fascinating to see him. I, I mean, yes, 
they I don't know what the definition of explicit or implicitly gay is, but for a, for, a, for something from 1980, it's pretty clear. There's like no two ways of interpreting some of those scenes. And uh, you can see a clip in the on YouTube of the series where they tried to give him a girlfriend, like they toyed with the idea of him trying to see have a relationship with a woman. But you can see the scene where he breaks up with her basically by saying having a dude tell her that he's gay. Yeah, then so, he and he looks at the picture of Martin. And the, the same picture from the movie. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yep. it's there. It's anyway, it's I think it's a great role for him also because because of the for better or worse impression of in the popular culture of Felix Unger and or Tony Randall being gay. Yeah. They're not, but it's just fascinating to see him take that persona cross that line and to say, okay, what if he is this uh, a particular type of older gay man living in New York? And I think he's very plausible in it. And it's a very sympathetic uh, portrayal. So with sympathetic, I mean like heartfelt, but still like warts and all, where he's like this, not a saint. So um, anyway, I got, so I, so obviously I watched 90 minutes of the movie, so I'm much more involved with that. And I didn't get a, much of a sense of the, of the show. Well, here's the here are the two versions of the theme for the show. Well, by the way, the theme song, which is based on the melody, the theme of the movie, the for probably the first theme, not the second yeah, one, which has no lyrics. Please believe me. Lately, my whole world is changing. Suddenly, you're here, and my life's better than before. That's Gladys Knight in season the second version. You know, I must say, as 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 dated as that uh, second version sounds, I but I do prefer it to Tony Randall's hearing Tony Randall sing, which I normally enjoy Tony Randall singing. But I think that first version 
So it's because of him or because of the other know. two? I think it's not a good song for him. Uh, but yeah, but know. as I mentioned, that is the theme, the theme of the movie. A lot of continuity in the personnel, apparently. Like the writer, the screenwriter for the movie is a, 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 one of the head writers of the show. The story, you mentioned it being a, having a story credit. The story credit is actually, fun footnote, is a, a woman whose name I forget, but she's the daughter of Eddie Cantor. Yeah, I think it's Marilyn Cantor. Marilyn Cantor or something, right. Her maiden name, Cantor. She's Eddie Cantor's daughter. And she's um, a producer on the uh, sitcom as well. And of course, Lefsony got, got about a three, uh, five-year jump on Golden Girls having Friends to be the theme of the show. Thank oh. you for being a friend. Oh. Friends forever. So like this predates, you know, do you watch, do you know what I'm talking about? I, I know what Golden Girls is, but I, didn't, I do not know the theme song. You don't know the theme song of Golden Girls, really? Really? That means you've not watched the Golden Girls. I've, I've never thank sat you for, down. Thank yes. you for being a friend. You don't know, go watch that afterwards. Right. Okay. So uh, as you said, there's really not, there's not a lot of, ironically, the movies out there, but the show really is not easy to get a hold of, at least from. Oh, and also on IMDb, almost no, most of the episodes don't have plot descriptions. So Wikipedia, some, did you look at get on that. Well, wait, did you look at Wikipedia? Because Wikipedia often has, oh. Wikipedia is really good for that sort of thing. Okay. So you should. I think I checked the page for the show. Maybe, okay, all right. Then maybe they didn't have an episode by episode guide. Did they? So here's a. Uh, so the the clip we found is very convoluted, which I don't know if every episode was like this, but the character of Lori is an actress and she's on a soap opera and the character on the soap opera is going to get a sex change and she wants they're, to base it off. Do, they were doing a lot of hot button issues on this show. There's an episode with a teenage prostitute too. She wants to base it off on someone she knows. So she chooses Sydney and she starts to follow him around and imitate him. And that's what this clip is. You're staring at me. Mama. Yes, you are. Mama. You're chewing. So are you. But I've got a cookie. Lori, <laughs> why would you want to be me? I'm a non-person. The gas company misspells my name. The mailman thinks I'm Godfrey on the 14th floor. Here's the ultimate indignity. This letter is addressed to occupant. An occupant is misspelled. It says occupant. That's what I am. An occupant. I love it. I'm going to be you. Good. Next Thursday, 12.30, you got an appointment with my dentist. <laughs> so that's the setup. Then they actually show a scene from the soap opera, which I'm not going to play. It's very visual, where she is a man. I guess she's being Sydney Shore-like, I yes. guess. she's And she's dressed in a trench coat and a... And I mean, why this character in her in her soap opera would want to have a sex change up or to be this like grumpy old man is confusing. But just very so weird. is the whole concept. It's very <laughs> weird, it's, and I again, I can't tell if this is like normal for. I mean, I remember watching the show a bit, uh, and 
I don't know, just remember it was like a family sitcom. You mentioned this teenage prostitute thing, which I don't, I guess I didn't. There's miss. a clip of that online too. Yes, I, I missed that. So, um, all right. So after the, after the soap opera airs, I guess now the little girl comes home and knows that her mother's playing Sydney on the show. And that leads to this scene. Hi, Sydney. Hi, sweetie. About me? I told her that mommy was playing you on her show. That's no big deal. Yes, it is. Gail and Jamie and Wendy's mothers, they never miss the show. Really? Well, you know, I can understand that. George Cornell is a breath of fresh air on television. <laughs> At first I thought it was silly, but now America has fallen in love with that character. They all think he's a wimp. <laughs> the writers they can't capture me you should see the garbage they got for me to do read this you wouldn't believe it i have homework they're hacks absolute hacks oh. Oh, <laughs> what a day what a day <laughs> let me tell you you should see the terrible stuff they got for us to do in tomorrow's show what what are you doing reading my script well that's my life if Gandhi were alive, wouldn't he want to see the script? I'm not doing your life. I'm doing a character based on you. Now, don't get carried away. I'm not carried away. I'm doing this for you and your career. George Trudell can make you a big star. It means nothing to me. Sidney, uh, where'd this copy of Variety come from? Oh, it's something I, I picked it up. We nearly took our time slot last week. Well, I must admit, George Trunell is creating quite a lot of talk. Tomorrow, a columnist from Soap Opera Weekly is interviewing me. No kidding. What time? Two o'clock on the set. Oh, good. I'll have time to get a haircut. They're interviewing me. But wouldn't they be interested in the man behind the character? No. Sydney, let me explain something to you. While this character is based on you, it is actually an extension, and why am I leaning on a videotape recorder? Well, I can't be home every morning. You went out and bought a videotape machine? Well, if I don't see your show, how am I going to give you pointers on your performance? Now, I know you're trying to do a good thing, but please, go back to your drawing board. Your work, the work you know best. I'm sorry. I I just want George Trinnell to be perfect. Am I going overboard? Hmm. I'll tell you something. My whole life, I never felt this good about myself. Well, it's hard not to feel good about yourself when you're America's sweetheart. <laughs> they do love me, don't they? you. They love George Trinnell. It's, it's apples and oranges. It's George Trinnell. May dress, walk, talk like Sidney Shore, but he's not Sidney Shore. Yesterday, George rushed into a burning building to save the life of a dog. Now, would Sidney Shore do that? Yes! <laughs> Even though I'm afraid of dogs. <laughs> well, would Sidney Shore land a 747 after the pilots had a heart attack? Yes! <laughs> Sure, go out with a beautiful woman. No, but I haven't had a 
So there's a obviously a gay joke there. Yeah. Um, hey, but you can't can't you hear it now compared to Tony Randall? So this is Felix. The, you hear the Felix Unger. Yes, so more than Tony. Yes, definitely. Uh, yeah. There is elements of Felix. Well, of uh, Felix in there. I mean, I don't know that Tony. That, those old line readings. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now I don't know that. I, you know, I don't think we should say objectively it's better that he, he sounds like Felix Unger because I don't. That's that may be not what Tony Randall wants to do with his career, but I do hear it there. Yeah. By the way, isn't it funny that she makes a big deal about their that he bought a VCR? Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I again, I don't know if this is representative of the entire show humor, but it's like Tony Randall show. It's strained. Like there's not a lot of funny lines, at least in this, you know, there's 20, 25 minutes here. And I, I feel like they were, um, I feel like the show itself or the writers of the show, maybe to your point earlier, like why did this become a sitcom? There just wasn't a lot of meat yeah. here on the bones and they were kind of strained they, to come up it's with. It's like they, tried to, they took the premise of the movie and they try to fit it into a kind of, of um full house kind of you know like formula family like generate multi-generational family in one house sitcom you know which is such a prominent genre yeah it doesn't quite fit i think it's really known at all today for yeah. its the theme it tackled you know the idea yeah. of a gay man and yeah. uh, susie kurtz is still around queen of kiff is still around um time for an oral history <laughs> and yeah i uh, yes yeah hey, uh, one one last thing i want to say is that it is you know swatching it now and knowing tony randall's life there's an i wouldn't say eerie but kind of like interesting resonance of what his life became because sure enough you know sydney shore is a story about an old, a lonely older new yorker who effectively marries this much younger actress they have they have like a platonic marriage in a way and a child right and That's and right. he wants to raise this child yeah sure right. enough it was still he was still married at this time to his longtime wife but his wife died like basically 10 years later the end like around 1990 and he became this lonely old yeah. New Yorker I, who married a young actress in his company and had it, children with except him. for the lonely part this character uh, that i i liked the good thing about the clip is i do think it showed this character who is just very down on himself and very morose. And it's like, he's a bummer. That's, I don't, but I don't Tony know. Randall, probably not. I mean, I maybe, I don't know Tony Randall, obviously, but I, I don't think of him that way. Yeah. And so I think that's the difference. You said lonely old man. I don't know if he was lonely. I guess, no, although he, you know, reports are, people say that he was, he was very social, you know, public setting, but he lived very solid, a solitary life even with his wife you know who he was, that i believe he was but I, that doesn't make you lonely per se no, not necessarily yeah but he wanted that family you know as he and what you got then yeah. in that interview right <laughs> yeah um all right i i i any i'm ready to move on um so our third and final failed sitcom that lasted two years from a <laughs> tony uh, an odd couple cast member is you again uh starring jack Klugman. less than three years after the final episode of quincy aired jack Klugman was back on nbc in a new sitcom which is based on a british show called home to roost which lasted four seasons but in uk that's 29 episodes yeah. it's about a divorcee named henry willows whose oldest son comes to live with him after his mother kicks him out uh in the u.s version 
Klugman plays Henry Lowell's. They don't they change, didn't the even change the cast. <laughs> no. Uh, and John Stamos was his son, Matthew, also the same name. Uh, John Stamos was 22, but he was already famous from playing Blackie on General Hospital. Uh, there was a housekeeper. Oh, okay. So that was his first, that's what he became known for first. Yes. This, he was a known person and, uh, and a hot property before, before the show. Uh, there's a housekeeper named Enid played by an act, a British actress, who I think is still around named Elizabeth Bennett. So that's this weird link back to the British. I guess so. British right. Band. Yeah. I didn't think about that, but you're right. The show was a mid season replacement, 85, 86. Got renewed for 86, 87 season. So it's not two full seasons. It's, that's why there's only 26 episodes. So it's um, kind of like one full season. You know, it's one and a half seasons. Um, I did have all the DVDs. I know I gave you about five episodes. Honestly, I didn't watch more than a couple because <laughs> it's not easy to get through. And I don't think there's any purpose in it. Uh, it aired on Wednesdays after Give Me a Break, primarily during its season and a half run. Uh, there are two very different opening title sequences and theme songs. Um, it's a little bit similar to The Odd Couple. In the first, we'll play both themes. In the first one, they're clearly giving the plot of the show like they had to do in The Odd Couple. Um, and then they got rid of that for season two, like they did in The Odd Couple, where they eventually got rid of the opening narration. And the season one, in the imagery, it, it shows Walter and Matthew at odds with each other. Right. Like, Walter did not want his son to come. That home seems to be the initial premise of yes. the show. And then by season two, they're they're buds. Yeah. Uh, so, and you'll hear how these themes are really quite different. I'm Henry Willows. I had a family. Had until my wife ran off with another guy. She left me seven years ago. My son Matt decided to go with her. this is back at a time when they actually had tv themes that were long 
Le Medici. Oh, right, right. Yeah, it seems so unnecessary. Um, the we should say also the um, yeah, it's quite a contrast in the tone. But you're right. This seems to be a, a bit of a big shift in the second season to like make it more upbeat and less conf- less uh, conflicty. Speaking of that, going back to Love Sydney second, do you think Tony Randall was pissed? when they replaced the theme or he said oh well if you got gladys knight fine i don't i have a feeling he was gladys knight was not his preferred genre of music but um he loves to sing but he uh he probably was pissed oh well since you went back to left can i just mention one more thing yes about yes not only is sydney shore a prom a, a, you know, a historically important gay character in television but for tony randall it's also important to note that sydney shore is jewish Oh, do they talk Tony about that? Tony Randall finally got to play a gay Jew. <laughs> is that in <laughs> and, the show? Is that in the movie? It is. It is. That is also implicit. We could say. I see. He has a grand uh, aunt named Yetta. Uh, he um, and I think I'm looking at this in the in the series. There's one episode with a bar mitzvah. Um, so. Yes, he is. And sure, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's a plausibly. Although it's spelled S-H-O-R-R, not S-C-H-O, right? S, not S-C-H-O-R. In the show? Oh, yeah, I don't, I, I, maybe, maybe it's not the spelling, but. Oh, yeah, ep- season two, episode 15, Sydney's Bar Mitzvah. I'd like to oh. see that episode. Yeah, I don't think of the way he's, S-H-O-R-R, I don't think of that as a Jewish last name. Okay. Um, all right, so. All right, what are you talking about again? You again. Oh. So here's something very interesting about you again, which I did not remember. The pilot aired after the Cosby show hmm. before it moved to Mondays at eight o'clock as a lead into the Hogan family. The pilot ratings were fantastic. It actually held 89% oh. of the Cosby lead in and was number two for the week with a 51 share. Hmm. Uh, that's a, that was February 27th, 1985. Now one could, I know there was a famous line. I think it was about Cosby from, Brandon Tartikoff or Warren Whittlefield, you could put a test pattern on off the Cosby and get a 50 share. That's not true. Uh, To to hold 89% and get a 51 share, people easily could have dumped out of the Cosby show. Now, at the time, there wasn't much to go do. So, and I I do think Jack Klugman was likable enough. And I wonder if you look at the- Maybe maybe more John Stamos, right? I don't think the Cosby viewers are not necessarily hanging on for the next Jack Klugman show. Maybe. I don't know. It's hard to know. I mean, I think, uh, and we'll talk about something else regarding the show in a minute, um, the reviews, which were not kind. Um, But I do think it's interesting that it did that well. I don't think you could put anything on and get a 51 share whole 99, but it did incredibly well. But the reviews were savage. I'm going to read you four of them. Cool. The Santa Cruz Sentinel. This person clearly not a Jack Klugman fan although it doesn't matter. His name is Tom Long. What an awful way to start an evening or end an evening. In fact, what a just plain awful show. Jack Klugman was acceptable as Oscar Madison in The Odd Couple 10 years ago, even if Tony Randall did steal virtually every scene from him. As Quincy, he was both amiable amiable and repugnant. This is just one of those sitcoms where you can see some fellow turning up the fake laugh track. None of the jokes work. Most of them don't even pretend to work. Famous. Quincy was repugnant? He's such a nice guy. This guy is not a fan of Jack Klugman. Now let's move on to Bill Carter, the famous New York Times, but at the time was at the Baltimore Sun. The review, sorry, the headline of the review, 
Klugman's comedy, No Laughing Matter. Jack Klugman plays comedy well. If he ever gets some comedy to play in his new series, the show might play well too. Then he goes on. I, I'm not going to quote the whole thing. He goes on to say some of the jokes are okay, but he writes that Klugman had signed on to do a darkish, edgy comedy like the UK version, mm. but it got heavily watered down by the time it went to air. Mm. There you go. The New Chicago Tribune in a, a review called You Again is Loaded with Blanks. Quote, as late as January, the new Jack Klugman situation comedy had no title, no executive producer, no supporting actor, and it is obvious that there is also no show. At a press conference in L.A. a while back, Klugman asserted that the series would never deal with the usual teenager fad of the week problems, which is, I think, what the show kind of became. Detroit Free Press, Detroit Free Press called it a basically dreadful nude sitcom. And Klugman is sabotaged by poor writing and a lame brain premise. Prepare for a laugh famine. <laughs> I didn't chuckle once. You again displays absolutely none of the wit or imagination of NBC's best family-oriented comedies, The Cosby Show and Family Ties. A real dog. Bark, bark. <laughs> uh, and it goes on and on. I think the Rotten Tomato score is 5%. I... Personally, I don't think the show is that bad. <laughs> right. There's a lot of bad sitcoms. Uh, yeah. Um, I watched a lot of, we have a lot of episodes, as I said. I, I, I watched a couple. The first one I watched is really weird. Did you watch the Willie Shoemaker episode? Yes. So this is was clearly a Jack Klugman. Horse racing. Uh, yeah, passion project. So the, Walter somehow gets to horse race against Willie Shoemaker. There's a because lot of it. Say it's like a, a TV a charity show, con. Yeah. Fantasy. Yes. There's yeah. a lot of outdoor scenes yeah. and a lot of racing. It looks really like expensive to do yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, it was not funny and it was really shoehorned in this thing. Yeah. It just was not good. Uh, uh, Whitman Mayo was in it though. He was in it. That's right. <laughs> we, we, we've talked about Grady on this show. Yes. I feel like yes. he keeps coming up. He keeps coming up. Uh, okay. So I ended up, I don't know why I picked this episode. It's season two, episode six. Um, Henry comes home. I'm going to play three clips from this episode. First, Henry comes home lugging a desktop computer and a, <laughs> which, and a monitor. Which is kind of funny. Which is kind of funny. It seems actually, <laughs> I didn't think in 86 anyone was bringing home computer. I guess he said he's bringing it home from work, which I didn't know people did in 1986. I'm not sure he's even yeah, I don't it's know. It's weird. It it feels ahead of its time, but in a way, right? If it were a laptop, yes. Um, okay, here's here's the scene. Good evening, Mr. Willows. <laughs> you brought your computer home. This is just what we need. I'm told they do wonders for household accounts and Matthew's schoolwork will improve. A friend of mine oh. is one of yes. <laughs> oh, oh I'm <laughs> How on earth did you manage to get all this home without hurting yourself? Who said I got home without hurting myself? Where's Matthew? He's upstairs studying. Oh, I hope my shouting didn't disturb him. Hey, Dad. Oh, I'm sorry I disturbed you. Studying comes first in this house. Hi. Maybe second. Yeah, this is Becky Davidson. How do you do? Hello, Mr. Rose. I'm very glad to meet you. Same here. Well, Matthew, you were right. Dy over dx equals 9x squared plus 10x minus 2. Cool. 
You knew that? Yeah. Did you hear that, Enid? He knew about the square with the two and everything? I'm very impressed. Me too. He's really very good at it. I'm very good. She's the one who's very good at it. You're a great teacher. Well, you're a terrific student. Enid, did you hear that? What? I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Matthew. Hey. Did you hear what Becky said? That he was a terrific student? Yes, I heard that. Did you ever think that we would ever live long enough to hear somebody say that about Matthew? Well, I thought I would, but I'm a good few years younger than you are. <laughs> sit down, sit down. Come on, let's talk. Oh, no, no, I can't. I've got to run or I'm going to be late for dinner. But I will be back in an hour to pick you up for rehearsal, Matt. You want to go all the way home, then come all the way back? Why don't you stay here for dinner? Oh, I don't want to impose on you. No imposition at all, Matthew. No, my dad's right. You can make a meal out of the vegetables I leave over. Yeah, please stay. Well, it would save time. Thanks. Okay. I'll tell you what. I'll just run upstairs and wash up and phone my folks and tell them, if I may. Oh, you certainly may. Thank you. Did you hear that, Matthew? Her first thought was to call her folks. Is that a Becky? I think you're in love, Dad. Edith! Oh, she's a lovely girl. Yes, Mr. Willis. Oh, I hope you don't mind, but I invited Becky for dinner. Oh, wonderful. We're having fish. Is there enough? It's okay, Dad. She didn't eat that much. I meant for you. Oh. <laughs> Where is she? She's upstairs washing. Oh, she'll need a fresh towel. Okay. <clears throat> Dad? Yeah? Can I ask you a favor, please? To take out Becky? Of course. Is plenty enough? Thanks a lot. No, it has nothing to do with money. <laughs> In the future, Dad, could you not invite my dates to dinner? I mean, can you let me invite them? Why? Don't you like her? Oh, please don't tell me you don't like her. No, Dad, I like her. I like her very much. It's just that well, it's a general rule. In general, it's not right, okay? Matthew, there's only one general rule in this house. I'm the general and I rule. <laughs> and here's a direct order. Yes, sir. Marry Becky. <laughs> So after that, Enid goes upstairs and she sees Becky in the bathroom with a flask of alcohol and she's drinking. Uh-huh. Uh, and then so here's the scene when Enid comes downstairs after witnessing that. But I'm afraid the Willow's house is about to enter in the computer age. I can figure out where to put these wires. Becky knows everything about computers, Dad. Is that a Becky? <laughs> for a moment, Mr. Willows. Me? You're the cooking expert. I need your help right now. I have a problem with the sauce. <laughs> okay, then what's wrong with the sauce? Which incidentally smells terrific. Uh, it's not this sauce. What is it? Well, I... Uh, what is it? I'm terribly sorry. It's just that I'm, I'm rather upset. Well, then you better tell me what it is. Very well. When I went up to put fresh towels in the bathroom, Becky was in there, and quite by accident, I saw her drinking. What is there to drink in the bathroom? Mouthwash? <laughs> Are kids into drinking mouthwash these days? Vodka, Mr. Willows. She was drinking vodka from a little bottle she had in her purse, and I heard it clink against another one when she put it back in. Our little Becky? Either. I'm sorry. I find that very hard to believe. Fine. Don't believe me. I'm a liar. Oh, wait a minute. I didn't say that. I've worked for you for six years, quite faithfully, I might add. Of course, otherwise... The long come to sniff of a go with her manners and her ways, and you're completely taken in. I am not taken in. 
But it's possible that the bottle you thought was vodka could have been a perfume bottle. Oh, yes, of course. How silly of me. Making a fuss about a girl pouring a perfume into a glass and guzzling it down. <laughs> Might as well smell as good inside as out. Uh, so later, Matthew is in a car accident, uh, and, uh, driving Becky's car. And this is the scene after Henry picks him up from the police station. Test me on the street and again, the police station, zero alcohol. Now, why don't you trust me? Oh, I trust you. Sometimes you forget that it's a two-way street. You gotta trust me back. Dad, I told you a hundred times I was not drunk. Then why did you go through the fence? Because, because why? Come on. Because I wasn't driving. Becky was. And she was drunk. Yes. And you covered for her. Yes, sir. And what is that supposed to make you? Some kind of a hero? Sir Galahad? No! How many more times are you going to cover for a seven, eh? Why don't you wait until she gets into an accident and kills herself or some innocent bystander? Dad, I know what I'm doing, all oh, right? Oh, Matthew, you don't have the slightest idea of what you're doing. Now, Becky has to go to her parents. She has to tell them that she's a drunk and that she has to seek help. Well, what if she can't? She has no choice. She has to. Matthew, in this world, there is nothing for nothing. You pay now or you pay later. Now, this is the price that Becky has to pay now to get well. Oh, sure, with friends like you, she can sweep it under the rug for a while. But then she'll pay later with a lot of interest. It's not too late altogether. Oh, Matthew, don't you see that your silence is not helping Becky? And neither is mine. I must have been out of my mind to let you bully me into going along with you. Why'd you do it? Because I was afraid that you'd hate me. I didn't want to lose your love, your respect. But I know that our relationship is not so flimsy and delicate as that. Because if it is, why the hell are we hanging on to it? Matthew, my silence could have cost you your life. And nothing, nothing in this whole world is more important to me than that. Take care of it, Dad. Talk to her parents. I'll do one better. I'll get her to talk to her parents. You know, you gotta go down to the police station. Tell me you switch with Becky. Yes, sir. Is that a Matthew? <laughs> hey, Dad. What? I can't breathe. <laughs> You can hear a little Quincy in there. Yeah, I get the sense, you know, uh, this being this is season two, right? Like yeah. Klugman wants probably wants to push for these dramatic scenes, wants to make yeah. it really deeper, you know? um, It ends up being a strange balance. It is. But it's not, I mean, this isn't worse than any other failed NBC sitcom in the 80s, which there were plenty of them. Um, after the show moved to Monday nights, it lost... Uh, a lot of the rating obviously couldn't hold that big Cosby lead in number, but it actually didn't do it actually ranked higher than Quincy in its day ranked mm. in the 25 to 30 range, but audiences grew tired and by the time it was canceled it had fallen down to rank below 50th or higher.
So here the show just didn't, the audience just wasn't interested. Um, so it was canceled. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Uh, you know, um, this, uh, uh, the episode, I read the episode list for this too. And uh, did you, <laughs> I really, I'm curious to see what the, the final, they probably, I'm curious if they thought, knew this was a finale, but the season two, the last episode of the series, season two, episode 13, did you read this plot description? No. It's called Where the Sun Don't Shine. A birthmark on his posterior lands Henry in the hospital when a biopsy reveals malignancy. Ugh. So is he going to die? <laughs> I, it's just, it's like Quincy, way to deal with yeah. cancer. And you and I both watched the episode with, who plays his brother? Not George Ben Grizzard. Yeah. George Grizzard plays his brother and his he's caught up in some what was his ponzi scheme was it a ponzi scheme or some kind of he's an invest he does these he's investments and he tries to get uh oh yeah henry but it's all like a scam yeah yeah um another you know episode that deals with serious topics as well um you know it's fine it's fine i remember i guess watching it again what's weird is i have no memory of this show existing and this I, was 1986. Like we were. Oh yeah, we were. Uh, you and I, I were talking about the Odd Couple at this time, weren't I, we? Why did you never tell me about? This? I. Uh, why do you? <laughs> how do you know I didn't? Uh, you might have. I guess you might have, but not, nothing you said made me curious. No, I. I remember. I remember watching it. I probably definitely watched the I'm episode sure after me. the Cosby Show, and I remember watching some more and just thinking, yeah, it's not that great, and uh, just never really staying with it. Also, it was. You know, in '86, I had to choose a network to watch. I didn't have a VCR in my room, so when it was on Mondays, all I did watch Hogan Family. Um, But I also watched Scarecrow, Mrs. King, which I think was also there, or maybe it was Kate and Allie was on Mondays. There's something against it. I probably was watching. Um, You know, okay. So my question about this is, how does this get made? I mean, my first when I started watching, I was like, what is the rationale? Did tell who in television thought we need an old Jack Klugman playing, you know, a single dad show? I mean, but then I when I saw it was based on the British thing, I guess it kind of made more sense. Like, because that Norman Lear, right, had uh, pioneered this kind of transplanting of British sitcoms to America. Yes. Yep. And uh, I guess that was still kind of a thing going into the 80s, trying to like find, make that. Well, I mean, the office, I mean, British taking oh, a British, course. oh my God, right. Taking a British sitcom, putting it in America is not, is common. And, and uh, so I guess, but you know, it's interesting that thinking about the all in family comparison, then I see what the, and what that review said that the home to roost British show must've been much more of like generation gap, like Archie and Meathead kind of conflict, you know, uh, maybe not as political, but the, the whole point would have been, you know, to, for them to be in constant conflict with each other and yeah and, and here it's like they iron that out they smooth that over so so much that it's like and klugman wants i think klugman doesn't want to play a cranky old man he wants to play a loving father but that in a way gets it gets in the way of the comedy you know and gets in the way of the makes it like well, i don't want to see a show about a happy family. <laughs> you know? uh, i want to see like you know real problems uh, also or, if you watch cosby which yeah. let's put aside uh, current issues was so and family ties which were so as the reviewer noted noted were so excellent in their in what they did and the way they did it you see 
how this is just a poor imitation of a, of a family. An imitation, right. In yeah. a way, because Cosby ultimately, regardless of all the subplots, like it was about a healing father. Uh, and uh, and it was funny. Like yeah. it worked. It had a great cast and it all gelled and the show didn't gel. It seems to me that Stamos, the more I think about it, is more the, the rationale for this to exist than uh well according to the way, Bill Carter, to, groom, to groom him no according to the article well according to the article there was no john stamos in a few months before the show aired so oh. I, I don't know it said there was no co-star in january oh, I see. Okay. um so i'm looking at the schedule it was it was up against scarecrow mrs king the time and hard castle mccormick which i didn't watch so i i maybe i did watch this and then valerie I don't remember which I watched, but I think I went back and forth. I just remember thinking it wasn't that great. You know what's really uh, that episode about the, the the car crash and the drunk girlfriend? Um, there was something really odd about. Yeah, you watched that whole episode. I think so. Yeah, there's something really odd about that episode to me. Oh, somewhere uh, in the police station. Yes, Robert Morse. Robert Morse. Yes, I was going to bring that up. Yes, in a completely inconsequential it's two sentences. Yes, so Robert Morse is a, was a big actor. He what was the musical he was in? Business yeah, he was like a big star, kind of like uh, maybe Not I a always major star, but I mean a known actor. Yeah. Uh, all right. Sorry. I, I, let me dial that back. He was a he's somebody who could have led a sitcom. He was a well. He been, he's known to younger audiences for Matt being Mr. Cooper and Mad Men. Oh, okay, and I don't. I didn't watch Mad Men. Um, so Steve's established actor, well known, big Broadway career. Maybe I should say right. that way, right? I always sometimes confuse him with Robert from The Music Man, Robert Preston. But yeah, I see Robert Morse is there. He's very recognizable, and it's two lines, and he's out. It's so weird, <laughs> and he's not the main policeman. There's right like, when they when uh, Klugman comes in with Stamos, they talk to another cop who's the part of the plot. Yeah, Morse is not part of the plot. He's there to tell a funny story or something. It's so weird, and it just made me think: Was he that? Did he need work? Was and like, wouldn't Klugman get him a better part than this? It, or it's almost like he needed to renew his SAG card. SAG card, and I bet Klugman knew him because they're yeah. Broadway actors, from right? And it's like he seems like he was doing him a favor, or just he's doing Klugman a favor by just dropping by and hanging out or something. But now, <laughs> what I just thought about is I don't think Eddie Garrett was in this show, which I now realize is oh, a little. They have, he, did he, they have a falling out? He could have been and a cop. What about Gary Wahlberg, right? Uh, yeah, he could have been a cop in the sure. in that background too. Although I did not look. To be fair, I'm trying to look now at the credits for Eddie Garrett to see if it you again shows up. Although I don't think. Well, while does. you're doing that, I'll say yeah. to me the uh, the one point. Oh, thing. sorry, he is in one episode. He's in one episode. He wow. plays Jonathan in season one, episode twelve. Marry me a little something. I don't think that's. I I, I, I probably have it. I just didn't awesome. send it to you. Good. Okay, that's great. Oh, that's were, great that he is in it. Um, what were you about to say? Okay, so the one poignant thing about so I'd say is it's just in simply in retrospect, just like Love Sydney takes on resonance knowing where Tony Randall's life ended up this is like the last major thing Klugman did before his throat operation yes yeah yeah so well, that um, was a few years later I was like four, just a few years after this. Yeah, yeah about four years this later ends in 1987 I think by 1991 certainly by 1990 he was okay out of it he was out of commission but uh and he's so he's in his uh he's like 
is in mid sixties by this point. He's Klugman's giving it his all. I mean, Klugman's not walking through this show, correct? Uh, because I think that's just not something Jack does. But um, well, except he did at the end of Quincy. There are plenty of uh, episodes. I I even watched another Quincy yesterday about a, a runner um, who is runs dies, and and there's a big speech about the the, the perils of the college athletic. Oh. culture but it's given by another actor who's oh. a lawyer yeah. quincy barely's in the episode in season six well maybe he you know he had issues with that show sometimes so who knows okay but, um but at least i was impressed that he was giving this really lame sitcom his all um he also noticed like the opening credits especially the season two opening credits make a big deal about it being a new york show in and queens works, yes in, in queens he works in new york and the whole the whole story of the opening credits is to show his commute. Yes, exactly. First of all, it's not funny. Is yeah. like, that supposed to be funny or what? But I guess it's establishing him as a New York businessman, although he works for a fruit company. He works for, no, he works, he's a supermarket <laughs> buyer, okay. but he works at an office. <laughs> right. And so maybe it's not a I, funny job. No. It's not a funny job. And and then the commute is to Queens, where John Stamos picks him up at drops him off. Seems like a story or something. He drops him off first at the oh, train, they, and they drive past Shea Stadium. Yeah, and then they go to this house that is like completely like Los Angeles suburbs. Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. The, once they're in the house, you have no idea they're in New York. Um, it's not like an Archie Bunker house. It is so I just don't get the geography. Yeah, it, the, yeah, it's not a. It all seems very like what I said before about actors criticizing network executives. There is a definite side of that that's accurate. And this feels like it were a bunch of 80s NBC executives just. There just there was no. Did a cliche. You know, this is what a, a, NBC 80s television is a cliche. 80s television that doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Is cliche is this sort of cliche tropes and stuff that and you just, said it's a mid season replacement? It was. I mean, does that also indicate that like this is like on on sitting on a shelf somewhere? No, no, it doesn't. No, there's p- plenty of shows that are became hits that were mid season replacements. Yeah. So no, no, it's just that they didn't have either wasn't ready in time or they simply developed it late or they just didn't have they were hold. Sometimes they hold a show because they know it's good for mid season. So no, I. I Somebody, you know, Brandon Tartikoff and his team. This is this is their at that era. Said, "Oh, got Jack Klugman was on eight years on yeah. this network just a few years ago, and here's a show that we think is." I still work. think Stamos, regardless of and Stamos, yes, yeah. I mean, clearly yes. there was an investment in him. Yes, getting Stamos was a coup, probably the time, and definitely a way to bring in younger viewers. And demographics were becoming more important in this time. And uh, clearly, the family sitcom was the bread and butter of NBC. Yeah, at this point, or sitcoms in general. So, mm-hmm. um, so it's you know, so wrapping up, it's a it's little interesting sad. time capsule. You know. It's a little sad that these two legends of a classic sitcom that somebody oh. should do a podcast about. Wow, I'll tell you, uh, could not find work in television again that was successful as a comedy. Yeah, I, I'm not blaming them. That happens a lot. Mary Tyler Moore had God knows failed shows after Mary Tyler Moore show and Dick Van Dyke. Um, Dick Van Dyke also found a hit in a drama History. Yeah. diagnosis murder. So obviously uh, that's, that's where it worked for one of them, but that's the legacy of, of Jack and Tony afterwards, obviously plenty of other stage stuff and other things that, you know, 
I guess were successful for them in ways and the 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 commercials for the hell Eagle Snacks. Eagle Snacks. But it's just ironic in a way that uh three attempts, three zero yeah. for three on the comedy space. Comedies. Well, I, I think what you're also indicating is that in a way sitcoms are harder to, to make the magic happen. Uh it drama is. you have a, a, a more leeway to as long as you follow the formula, you know, as long as you find a formula that people crop show mystery that people like. And, and it shows how special the odd couple really was. Yes. Like if this this if this is gonna button up our entire podcast, which I feel like we're gonna try to still do something yeah. else, yeah. it just shows that there was a magic there that you know was very unique. Obviously, you have the great Gary Marshall behind it, which I don't right. think they although, don't have a Gary Marshall. No, well, the Paget and Tarsus from Tony yep. Randall show, I think, are given a legend. You know, they're given their due as, they as, had their as success. Yes. Um, but it again, regardless of that, there's just a magic in the odd couple, seasons two through five. Yes. <laughs> that um that is just it's 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 not yeah. just a, it's not about these two performers these actors could not expect to, to yeah and they, they were elevated by other things and while they were both perfect for the roles and couldn't imagine anyone else playing them it wasn't about any either of them yeah. here's analysts let's put the two of them together they neither yes. they didn't have a co-star to play off correct of they did not right there was um, no here's a theory i developed watching these shows that in a, and thinking about their careers also with Quincy, I think my theory is that Tony Randall's career declined as he got older. That the height of Tony Randall's career was as a young man, a young actor in the 50s, doing those nerdy, those little nerd guy roles in Mr. Peepers or the Darst Day, Rock Hudson movies. And that in a way he turned to the odd couple, he turned to television when he, he says that he was, his movie career was starting to lag as he approached 50 and yeah, he wanted a series and he found the perfect, he had the perfect role that found him in Felix Unger. Um, but in a way his energy, his appeal as a star was as a young man, he was a very appealing young comedian, young comic actor. And just the roles weren't, he didn't, didn't I think he's great in, in Sydney Shore, but I mean, I think the audience liked saw him differently. Klugman is the reverse. Klugman's career got more successful and richer as he got older. He grew into a role like Quincy, while early on, he wasn't, he was a, a kind of a, a played like losers or young men, troubled young men, and he never found a starring role. Uh, his, his key younger roles were supporting characters that were kind of straight men and um, nice guys but not the star but when he quincy was a role that found him that he couldn't have played or wouldn't have been cast in 20 years before so you're talking about starring roles in this point and then i guess so, yeah because right. i would the, the counter is that jack Klugman's twilight zone appearances are considered oh, quite iconic yeah. and tony randall's letterman appearances are <laughs> well iconic. i think that well that's that's interesting tony randall's career evolved as he only he became the talk show guest he became the zen yeah. talk show guest yes like, he found another persona but as far as his like starring roles in film or TV, I think it was harder as he got older. And I think Klugman, if, had he not had the, the throat cancer, might have gone on to continue that way. I was about to bring that up. I was yeah. about to say, if his voice was fine, yeah. I, I bet there could have been a Quincy revival at yeah, some point. Sure, like Columbo, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, those are. Have you ever seen those? I I don't want to watch. They're them. horrible. They're yeah. so bad, and I really want to like them. They're so bad. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it is. It is. It is interesting to think what Jack Klugman would have been able to do because he lived twenty more years. Now. Yeah, and uh, we know he did act like he did yeah, huh? fully retire, but he probably could have. You know, I, I, I. It's not that I. I bet. I assume TV parts did not evolve because of his voice, right? And that they could have evolved had there been. Yes, um, Had there been, had he been able to just yeah. speak normally. Um. All right. Well, we've covered their entire careers. Really? Look, you were worried we we were you we were trying to do all this all in one podcast. We had a lot to say about these shows. Yeah, you're correct. I we got a lot. Uh, we got a lot of out of these four shows more than I expected. Indeed. Uh, so we still are going to try to do a trivia show, right? Uh, yeah, that could work. And could we'll work. see what else we can and come up with to keep. Anyone this wants going. to make any suggestions of yeah other odd couple topics? Um, we could review the early stuff the jack klugman twilight zones the tony randall sure, mr peepers we never, we've mentioned all those but we yes never really so that so. is something to do the i try to watch those rock hudson doris day movies or like the yeah. seven faces I've, of dr lao i've stuff. watched all that i've wa- i went through a phase where T- tcm had a tony randall marathon one day. I they're not i was not entertained i i i hear you yeah all right yeah, but still that. we watched I, well, could talk, I could talk about that I wasn't entertained by these three sitcoms, so we talked about them. So, yeah. uh, all right. Well, uh, friends forever, Garrett. <laughs> um, uh, what's the Golden Girls song? Uh, thank you for being a friend. Thank you for being my friend, Ted. Okay, goodbye. Bye.